This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We will deliver four additional Leopard 2 tanks to the armed forces of Ukraine and an armored recovery vehicle. This is in addition to the four Leopard tanks already in the region, which CAF members are right now training Ukrainian tank members to use. The Prime Minister today, a show of support for Ukraine as we mark one year, 12 months ago today, uh, the illegal and unjustified Russian invasion. An invasion that in Putin's mind uh, was going to last days, maybe weeks. And here we are one year later. The outcome still hangs in the balance. Ukraine has... uh, certainly acquitted itself tremendously in repelling much of the Russian invasion. But Russia does still occupy Ukrainian territory. And we anticipate that there will be attempts at uh, some kind of a counteroffensive as we get into the spring months here. So this is all far from over. And are countries like Canada going to stick with Ukraine in the long run here? Are we going to be marking the second anniversary of this war? It's hard to know. So that's part of the conversation. Where will, where should things go in the next 12 months? But how did we get to this point? Why did this happen? Why did Putin feel that, that he could do this, both in terms of achieving military success and also getting away with it? Because I think to some extent, or a large extent, he's got neither. But yes, that question of how this all gets resolved, where we go from here, is there a situation, an outcome uh, that returns Ukrainian territory to Ukrainian control, that respects the integrity uh, of Ukrainian sovereignty, that respects Ukraine's borders? Would Putin ever agree to that, absent a defeat? Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts on the occasion of this anniversary and where things go from here. Very pleased to welcome to the program this afternoon, Aurel Braun, a professor of international relations and political science at the University of Toronto, also a research associate with the Center for Russian and East European Studies and of the Center for International Studies at the University of Toronto. Professor Braun, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me on. Uh, As we look back uh, a year ago and, you know, there were denials from Russia that they were going to invade. There were the accompanying denials, uh, I think, from from the Putin apologist that uh, Russia was not going to invade. But how surprised were we or should we have been that that it actually happened? The Biden administration had predicted that there would be an invasion, but they failed to prevent it. In other words, Western deterrence collectively failed. More than that, and very dangerously, Vladimir Putin tried to read the likely Western responses, the fact that we were very reluctant to provide even defensive armaments to Ukraine at that point. Look at Germany. They were sending uh, helmets and meals ready to eat and nothing else. The fact that President Biden talked about defending NATO territory, thereby giving the impression that anything outside of NATO territory was not something that necessarily would be defended, gave Vladimir Putin the impression that he had a green light. Mm-hmm. He was mistaken, but it was not some wild, entirely irrational gamble. In fact, had 
the administration in Kiev, that is President Zelensky, fled, as he was advised to do, instead of saying memorably, I'm not looking for a ride, I need ammunition. Vladimir Putin may have had his parade in Kiev. Yeah, it's it's frightening to think, but that was a very real prospect uh, in the early part of this campaign, of this invasion. And had things gone a little bit differently, that that might have been the result. Yes, there's a certain psychology to war. If you can have this shock and awe, and the other side collapses, then that momentum will hide all the problems that your offensive has. However, if there is resistance, then your military force is tested. And what happened was that the mighty Russian army was the one that we thought was the mighty Russian army proved to be as corrupt as the Russian government and as the Russian economy and ineffective. It couldn't take a punch. Yeah, and which has been the bigger factor in the, the lack of success for Russia? Their their own shortcomings or is, is the credit more due to Ukraine and, and the support for Ukraine? It's a combination, obviously, but were it not for the tremendous determination of the Ukrainian uh, armed forces and the remarkable skill that they had exhibited, uh, they could have been overcome. But Russia's military is not anywhere as strong as we had imagined. Uh, It was badly organized, poorly led. It did not have high morale. They were not fighting for uh, their own uh, national existence. The Ukrainians are fighting for their existence because Vladimir Putin made it clear that this war was not just about some minute elements of territory. This were those who advocated, let's have negotiations, let's make concessions, let's find an off-ramp, don't understand what Vladimir Putin is about and what his regime is about. Vladimir Putin stated from the beginning that one he did not believe there was something called Ukrainian nationality. It was an artificial construct. Two, that there was no real state called Ukraine. It was something created by the Soviet Union. And three, he stated that he also had certain goals against NATO. He wanted all the measures taken by NATO post-1997 to be reversed. So this is a very broad, very, very broad goal. And uh, so that goal had to be met head on, and it continues to uh, be something that we need to take into account. Vladimir Putin made a speech that I think we should have listened very closely to on Wednesday. Not only did he go full Soviet, where he used this kind of Orwellian inversion, where Russia was defending itself against a Western attack, not engaged in aggression, where uh, Russia was seeking to preserve civilization, not to endanger it. But he also said that this battle is underway for Russia's historical borders. Well, what did he mean by that? If it was the Soviet borders, that would include Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, any number of other states. If it was the czarist historical borders, that would include even Poland. Mm-hmm. Right, which begs the question of what it is Putin wants here. I mean, you know, there were all kinds of excuses for the invasion, like protecting ethnic Russians and denazifying and biolabs. But now he's he's turned it into some kind of an existential crisis for Russia, as as he would portray it. But there there is an agenda here. There are goals and objectives here. What what is it that he wants, ultimately? 
I had uh, argued repeatedly in writing and elsewhere that Vladimir Putin has failed. Uh, 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 Russia, in many ways, is a failed state. Out of the nuclear weapons is by no stretch of the imagination a superpower. Uh, the economy uh, of Russia is such that after more than 30 years following the fall of communism, the average Russian is poorer than the average Romanian or the average Turkish citizen. Uh, and this is a country that has astonishing scientific talent and almost unlimited natural resources. So Vladimir Putin has created an utterly corrupt, ineffective system where for the first decade of his rule, very high energy prices camouflaged how he basically was betraying the future of Russia by creating this kind of uh, oligarchy, uh, this political and economic corruption. But he had a type of tacit understanding with the population that uh, the population would have a continually improving, even if not uh, very largely, but still improving standard of living in an exchange that would not challenge him politically. As the economy began to falter, that social contract began to fall apart. And I do not think it is a coincidence that many months before the invasion, the first thing that we should have noticed was the tremendously increased repression within Russia, how fearful Vladimir Putin was of his own people. And what do dictators do when they fear their own people? Well, they reach into the toolbox of dictatorship and they look for some external adventure, external danger. And he knew that in 2008, when he invaded Georgia, his popularity skyrocketed, and the West did virtually nothing. In 2014, when he first invaded Ukraine and illegally annexed Crimea, Vladimir Putin's popularity again skyrocketed, and the West did very little. So why not go in for a repeat performance? In terms of where this goes from here, now there's this... Uh, outline anyway of a peace plan that China has put forward that I think we should you know greet with suspicion. Although President Zelensky did note that maybe there's some some interesting points that that uh, you know can at least be a starting point here. But uh, aside from that, how, how does this get resolved? Well, the Chinese peace plan is really a non-starter. They do not even admit that there has been aggression on the part of Russia. So when you look at the fact that. Uh, a third of the population of Ukraine has been made into refugees. Tens of thousands of Ukrainians have been killed, where the American administration, the British administration, and others have argued that there have been uh, uh, war crimes on a vast scale to the extent that uh, Anthony Blinken and uh, Kamala Harris, the American vice president, called it uh, crimes against humanity. Uh, so if there's not a recognition of, of that, you can't really have realistic negotiations. Mm. When we listen to Vladimir Putin and what his open-ended goals are, when he uses the same kind of Soviet lexicon and explanation that the Brezhnev administration used after the invasion of Czechoslovakia, that they were provoked, they were on the defensive, and the Czech people welcomed them, which was absolutely absurd, then it's very hard to see how negotiations can take place until Vladimir Putin becomes convinced that he's losing the war. He isn't. He isn't convinced of that because he has amassed a very large number of troops. He is preparing for a new offensive. He is hoping to continue to divide the West. Uh, he is trying to use nuclear blackmail, such as uh, 
pausing Russian participation in the New START agreement. So we're all talking about this uh, nuclear development, and this plays right into his hands because he knows that particularly in Western Europe, there is a tremendous fear of nuclear war. It has inhibited the kind of help that Ukraine needs. Certainly, the West Europeans have slow-walked that help. And so until we reach that point where on the ground Vladimir Putin begins to understand that this is a hopeless military situation and that he has to negotiate in a realistic fashion where he will have to make real concessions and acknowledge that Ukraine will not become part of Russia, it's very difficult to see how an agreement could be reached. Well, to be sure, I mean, certainly any kind of agreement has to involve Ukrainian territory being restored to, to Ukrainian control, uh, acknowledgement and respect of Ukraine's borders. I mean, those two seem non-negotiable. It's almost impossible to imagine Putin agreeing to that. It's very difficult to see that. There was a resolution that was passed in the Security Council yesterday. 147 countries, the vast majority of the states, uh, had... Uh, voted that Russia should leave Ukrainian territory. Only seven countries voted against it. Some like 30 abstained, but that included China and, and India. So uh, it has had no effect on, on Vladimir Putin as long as he believes that he still has a chance, he will gamble. He's not a chess player. We always think of him as a chess player. He is more of a poker player. And he hasn't finished playing his, his cards. And he has to understand that he doesn't have a, a good deck, uh, if we are to stay with that metaphor. And so we have to show steely determination, unwavering support for Ukraine. And Ukraine has to continue to win on the ground. The momentum that Ukraine had uh, in the fall of last year um, was broken because we were not delivering the heavy stream of armaments that Ukraine was requesting. We're talking about tanks now, over a year later. Yeah. Uh, the Ukrainians were asking for tanks, you know, many, many months ago. Mm-hmm. We used the excuse that it takes a long time to train Ukrainian forces. Well, wouldn't that uh, uh, largely uh, work towards telling us that we have to move faster and earlier so the Ukrainians are able to defend the themselves, that they are able to try to retake territory. They have retaken slightly more than half of what Russia conquered uh, following the invasion uh, of uh, February 24th, uh, uh, 2022. But uh, the Russians already had Crimea before and parts of the Donbass. So it's a very difficult situation. And when uh, we uh, think of what will happen, In the future, nothing is predetermined. To a significant extent, it depends on us in the West. Are we going to give Ukraine what they want? They are not asking for troops. They made it very clear that they do not need boots on the ground. ground. It's sort of like the British said at the beginning of the Second World War. Give us the tools and we will do the job. We'll leave it there for now. Professor Braun, appreciate the insight and uh, thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Thank you. All the best. Uh, there you go. That is uh, Professor Earl Braun. He's at the University of Toronto, Professor of International Relations and Political Science, also a research associate at the Center for Russian and East European Studies.
uh, some analysis from him on uh, where things are at one year after this invasion, where things go from here and what peace can look like here. Well, headline today in the Globe and Mail's editorial page, Daniel Smith's corporate welfare for the oil industry. Corporate welfare is actually the term that uh, former UCP MLA Drew Barnes has used to describe uh, this proposal. But there's been a lot of criticism of this. The idea that we need to further incentivize oil and gas companies to clean up the inactive wells that they are legally responsible for. Is that the right way to go about this? Now, there's some history here, and, and this goes back to before Daniel Smith re-entered politics and her embrace of what was known as the R-Star approach, which was this on a much bigger scale. What her government is now envisioning is a pilot project, similar in nature, but for now much more limited in scope. But it's basically the same approach. Now, rather than uh, adjust the strategy here, the premier has kind of doubled down. Uh, releasing a statement late yesterday afternoon. It says here, Premier Daniel Smith issued the following statement in response to inaccurate claims about the government's ongoing efforts to rehabilitate Alberta's oldest and most problematic oil and gas development sites, many of which have flare pits, sumps, and other environmental hazards that must be cleaned up promptly. The approximately 83,000 inactive wells in Alberta, she says, approximately 20,000 were drilled before 1980 and have been inactive for more than 20 years. The number and potential environmental problems proposed, opposed by these older well sites worsened with time. So, yes, this is a problem, and I think everybody agrees that this is a problem. But is this the right way to address it? And anyway, joining us for some thoughts is someone who's been following all of this very closely, has written a lot about it himself, Andrew Leach. Uh, professor of Economics and of Law at the University of Alberta. Uh, professor Leach, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me back. So what do you make of this this statement, first of all? It doesn't represent, I think, any change in direction here. In fact, it still seems it's uh, full steam ahead. Is that fair to say? Well, the statement yesterday was incredibly confusing. It seemed to have, you know, on the one hand, is talking about orphans, which have a very specific meaning. They don't have an owner. On the other hand, she's talking about a pilot program that would be directed at presumably wells held by operating companies that just haven't reclaimed them or, or remediated them yet. There was a part where it seemed to confound the requirement that companies have each year to spend on, on closure, the minimum requirements, with their total legal requirements. So it, it seemed to almost throw more confusion into the mix. It, you know, I won't necessarily say more inaccuracies, but... I. I think that's maybe generous of me. It, it really did muddy the waters even more. It didn't clarify anything. So is, is it fair to call this our star? Because that was what Daniel Smith had proposed to the Alberta government at the time in 2021 before she re-entered politics, a, a proposal that had been around for a while. Is this that? Uh, we don't know. I, I think she's talking in broad strokes, yes. It's the concept of using royalty credits or royalty... Uh, royalty dollars one way or another to incentivize the cleanup of, of wells that are inactive but not orphans. Or, um, th that's generally the premise of R-Star. Now, R-Star was, you know, up to $20 billion worth of liabilities could be re but it, it wasn't necessarily a program with a clear budget and clear rules, etc. It was a concept. And so this still sounds like 
we're piloting the concept to some degree, although, again, the details are, are still to be defined in a lot of ways. Well, you mentioned these terms matter. Um, so inactive is, is straightforward enough. Uh, abandoned, we hear that word. I don't know that that has a defined meaning in this context, but orphaned definitely does. Are, are a lot of these lines getting blurred in this conversation? They absolutely are, and it's, I guess, common in, in the law where you will have a statutory meaning that differs from the ordinary meaning, and, and sometimes common in engineering as well. And in this case, it's, it's the two worlds overlapping. When we talk about abandoning a well from... Um, the legal perspective, or even from the resource management perspective, that's the the decommissioning of the equipment. When we talk about an orphan, it's a well that has no owner that's responsible for any of the work that's remaining to be done on, on that site. Uh, but, you know, in common parlance, I think when people are talking about abandoned wells, they're really talking about the orphans. They're talking about a liability on the landscape for which there's no responsible party there. And that's, or, um, and whether that's official, have they been deemed an orphan or are they just, you know, sitting there with no reasonable prospect that anyone's ever going to pay the, pay for the remediation? Those terms that are very distinct in the law, it's not that clear that they're distinct in the, in the understanding of the public. Because if, if a well or a site is, is, uh, is orphaned, that's, where the Orphan Well Association comes in. Exactly. So if it has been designated as an orphan and, and transfer the responsibility transfers to the Orphan Well Association, which is funded by a levy on uh, operating entities, oil and gas companies in the province, that's kind of the legal definition of an orphan. But we have a lot of licensees or licenses in the province, facilities, wells, etc., where the regulator is clearly of the opinion that there's no financially viable party to take on that liability, and yet those haven't been officially designated as orphans. So they're orphans in all but name, if you want to think of it that way. Right, and I think part of what you've you know tried to raise is that you know this could get worse, and there are some some companies with liabilities that that are facing tremendous financial stress, and so the the inventory of orphan wells may grow. Yeah, I mean, I think we know that there are a large number of, as I said, orphans in all but name. There are licenses that are owned or held by companies that are insolvent but not yet bankrupt, if we, if we want to think of it that way. So it's just a matter of time, and that time could be months, years, decades before there's some trigger that forces them into bankruptcy and or that forces the regulator to actually designate those wells as orphans. But I think we know that there are going to be more of them. And in the next downturn, of course, we know that there, if there, if such a, a big downturn comes again, we know that there will be more and more created. So what are, what are the wells or the sites that we're talking about here under this proposal? Uh, that's a really good question. <laughs> And, you know, I, I wish I were in a position to answer it, but the government's been very vague about this. Premier Smith, some cases she talks about orphans, some cases she talks about um, these inactive sites with a particular timeline. Sometimes she talks about them like they have a, you know, we're, we're looking at the ones with the highest liabilities. But, you know, I can't, I'm not going to speculate on a program that they simply refuse to define. Right. But we're not changing the definition of orphaned. We're not 
giving companies royalty credits to take on these liabilities, are we? Well, that's, again, not clear. I mean, it's certainly possible. The Orphan Well Association has some discretion to enter into contracts. I mean, they're, they're obviously having to undertake work uh, through contracts with other entities to get the, the work done. So and anything is possible. It's all within the, the jurisdiction of the government. And I think it's unfortunate that we're in a position where we're having a debate over a program that you know, the, the premier is obviously annoyed with the fact that there's inaccuracy and confusion, but they're causing it. Yeah, so it would seem. Um, you know, the the idea of extending royalty credits to, to companies to, to address all of this, who does that stand to benefit and, and who stands not to benefit? Well, I think, it, to me, you start with who's taken responsibility under our existing regulatory framework. And and first of all, of course, the, the companies drilling, owning licenses, drilling the wells, et cetera, they have a legal responsibility. But the industry, you know, you know you could see me, I'd have air quotes around it. The, the, the general industry has taken responsibility through this orphan well program for remediation, reclamation uh, of wells that don't have another company that can take responsibility for them. And so as soon as you start saying, we're going to take royalty dollars, so essentially we're going to take revenue that would otherwise be government revenue, and we're going to spend it on those obligations. Your benefit, you're, you're spending it either for dollars that would be spent by those individual companies, or you're spending it by, uh, in lieu of dollars that would be spent by the industry as a whole through the orphan well levy. So you're taking what would otherwise be the government's share, and you're parceling it back to industry. Details will determine how much of that is sort of directed to individual companies versus uh, taking care of liabilities that would otherwise end up as orphans and be the responsibility of the industry writ large. Because we're talking about a, a distressed company or one that's teetering on the brink that has these liabilities that simply doesn't have the resources or the capital to to address that, to, to go and clean yeah. that up. Does, does a royalty credit do anything to change their situation? Well, again, this is, I, I wish we had a clear answer. So I think the proposal that was on the table for our star would say, um, we'll give you cents on the dollar. We're not paying you one dollar. We're not paying you dollar for dollar um, for this reclamation work, but we'll give you royalty credits that are worth some amount, but not equal to the total amount that you spend. If you don't have any dollars to spend, that's not going to help you. But if you do have some dollars to spend, yeah, you're going to be happy to take on um, those expenses if the government's paying for you know, 25, 30, 40 cents on the dollar. But, you know, a company that is completely destitute, they're not going to be able to offload a million dollars worth of liability because the government's pledging to pay a few hundred thousand dollars of it. No, still no one's going to take that on. Uh, but I think the, the program still, and I know this is frustrating, I wish I had better answers, but the specific program that they're piloting, they've talked about it in ways, in some cases, have suggested dollar for dollar. So you would get a credit equal to the cost of doing the reclamation work. You might get a credit equal in value to more than the value of doing the reclamation work to incent other companies to take on some of these would-be orphan liabilities. Uh, but any dollars that come out of royalties, it might as well be the same as writing a, a giant novelty government check and, and handing it over. And it's interesting, too, for companies that would have the resources and for whatever reason haven't 
you know, fulfilled their obligations. Does it create an incentive in the meantime to just wait, to not do anything right now? Absolutely. I mean, we saw this, for example, with, uh, you know, with with solar panel, household solar. Um, When you know that there's a government program coming, all of the incentive is to wait. You're not going to, you're not going to pay someone to install this now, knowing that you might get the government to pay uh, a share of it down the road. And so this isn't an oil and gas exclusive problem, right? The home renovation tax credit, if you knew it was coming, you'd, it would make sense to delay your renovations until it takes effect or um, to accelerate your renovations in some cases to take advantage of the credit. And even if they were things you were going to do anyway, you're just taking the money. And there's the economic impact assessment here, which economists love, but uh, the oh, idea that we'll incentivize this, uh, you know, companies will be putting people to work to go out and do this, that it creates all of this economic activity and that snowballs, et cetera, et cetera. What, what do you make of all of that? Well, I think the, the thing with economists and, and these economic impact analysis will always say measure it sort of full, uh, looking at it holistically. So these dollars aren't coming from the sky, they're coming from what would otherwise be government revenues that would otherwise be spent on other types of activity that might have a higher social value. And so giving it to an oil and gas company to do work they were already going to do, that's not creating new activity. It's taking away resources that would have done other work of importance to the government. And even if it is incenting some new activity, it's not incremental new activity, it's different new activity. So treating the money as though it were like found money that would otherwise not be put to use is just a fundamental error in doing that kind of analysis. Well, we'll leave it there for now. The Premier's statement says this is still under consideration. I guess we'll see what they decide to do in the end and whether we get some further clarity on all of this. But uh, we do appreciate the insight, Andrew. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. For sure. Thanks for having me. All the best. There you go. That's uh, energy economist Andrew Leach of the University of Alberta. His uh, assessment of at least kind of what we know about this idea as it was first proposed, what the government may be considering. They've talked about $100 million over three years in royalty credits as a pilot project. But as the premier says, final decisions have not been made. But it is interesting that she talks about inaccurate claims. As Andrew Leach says, there's just a lot of confusion, and that lies at the feet of the government here. Welcome back. Afternoons on QR Calgary. Uh, Rob Breckenridge with you. I want to talk right now about self-defense. And imagine a situation where you're at home. And maybe some of your loved one, your family members are too. And people are breaking into your house. You know, you're, you're the victim of a robbery. You're the victim of a home invasion. What are your rights? What are you legally able to do to defend yourself, to defend your loved ones? Well, Section 34 of the Criminal Code of Canada, which was uh, changed about a decade ago by the Harper government to try to better clarify self-defense rights. But that's the section of the criminal code that spells this all out. Now, there's still some gray area, I suppose, in the law. And also there's the question of, is it evenly enforced or interpreted by police forces across the country? So we've got two examples recently where this sort of thing has happened. There was a case recently in Halifax where a homeowner acting in self-defense, fatally stabbed an intruder. 
Police determined that that was an act of self-defense. The homeowner in Halifax avoided prosecution. Uh, But just in recent days, there was a situation in Milton, Ontario. Uh, Up to four men, we understand, one of them armed with a gun, broke into a home where a 22-year-old man and his mother were home asleep. A shot was fired, the homeowner says, to protect his mother. One of the invaders was uh, fatally wounded. The homeowner, 22-year-old Ali Mian, has been charged with second-degree murder. So pretty similar cases. One results in no charges. The other results in one of the most serious charges that exists on the books. So why the different uh, approach here? What does this tell us about self-defense law and what Canadians are legally able and entitled to do in these kinds of situations? Well, someone who follows these close uh, cases very closely is uh, Edward Burley. He's a uh, lawyer specializes in firearms law, self-defense law, and we've uh, spoken with him many times. We appreciate his insight on all of these matters. Edward, good to have you back with us here. Welcome to the show. Well, good to hear from you again. How can I help you out? Well, yeah, let's get your thoughts here. Um, We've got the uh, rights uh, spelled out under Section 34 and 35 of the Criminal Code, yet here we have these two very different outcomes. A man in Milton, Ontario, charged with murder. A man in Halifax, uh, not charged at all by police. How do we explain those differences? Explaining it is to understand that it's, it's applied differently depending on the police force, depending on the politics of the day, and depending on the approach. You see, I think what's happened in the Milton situation, and we don't know all of the story here at all. Right. We have a very small amount of the story. Um, what we can figure is the police are not making the decision. They're saying that the decision as to the reasonableness of of using force and the way the force was used is going to be left up to a judge, not by the police. Mm-hmm. So that's why then the reasonableness of the response of the homeowner and uh, the amount of force applied will be something that will be determined by a judge. The police won't take the responsibility here. Right. So it's a, it's a matter then of police just, they're doing their job, they're collecting all the evidence, determining what happened, and sort of leaving it then either to the prosecutor or to, to a judge to, to sort out these issues. Yes, because the actual news about the charge being laid, um, it was announced, the person was arrested, being the homeowner, mm-hmm. While the forensic team of the police were still in the house trying to figure out what happened. And they, you know, the forensic team, when they're in a house, they're looking at uh, where the uh, empty cartridges are. Are there any other bullet holes? Uh, What was broken? Who was standing where? Is there any blood spatter to try to establish who was where? All those things are being looked at. But the charge was laid before that. So it, it, it may may have been laid too soon. Right. Was Is that unusual? I would say yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, it's one thing to have a person held uh, pending a charge. They can hold a person for, you know, they can lay a light-duty charge, like unsafe use of a firearm or something like that, and hold them for 72 hours. 
under investigative uh, delay, mm-hmm. you know, and and then try to figure it out and see what they come up with. But, you know, I think that that was, it was hasty for the charge to be laid at the present time. Right. The situation in Halifax where, you know, the homeowner used a, a knife in, in self-defense, and even though it was a, a lethal use of force, uh, police say that uh, criminal charges are, are not being considered. So it seems in Halifax that, that maybe it didn't get past, you know, the police investigation point. Well, we have to look at something else as well. We know that when there's a stabbing, people are within arm's length. Right. So they're engaged in a fight. There's a confrontation that's very real, very personal. And to stab some person, you have to be right there with them. So we knew a struggle was going on. But we don't know if there was a struggle or not in Milton. Mm -hmm. You see, we don't know why the homeowner's legal gun was discharged. We don't know if that person, uh, you know, the owner of the gun who's charged was far away, like 20 feet away from the person that we shot. Uh, We don't know whether or not they were perhaps struggling over the gun and it went off. That's unanswered. Yeah, that's an important point. I, I believe that through his lawyer, the individual has argued that or claimed that he was protecting his mother. And, and I mean, if that turns out to be the case, then maybe he's got a pretty strong defense here. But these facts need to be established, right? Because there, there's a limit to, to the use of force. If someone's crawling in your window with the intent of breaking into your house, the lethal force in, you know, wouldn't be justified at that point, would it? Well, no. Now, what we do know is we, we know that one of the survivors of this home invasion uh, was arrested and had uh, illegally possessed a firearm. We don't know what firearm. Right. But the person who was shot and killed, we don't know if they had a weapon at all. So these are the types of things that we don't have the answers to. And it's rather surprising, in fact, that the person's lawyer would say that my client shot a person and that person died because that doesn't explain it. Mm-hmm. As I say, we have these questions. But if we, if we look at it, I mean, if there's a struggle going on, if somebody's there and they're, you're up against them and, and you've got a weapon, maybe you're brandishing your gun to say, get out of here or I'll shoot, and then they lunge for you or they pull a gun on you or they pull a knife on you and they're really close and you think you're going to get injured or your your family's going to get injured, then the use of force is reasonable, even if it's deadly force. That's what the police are able to do, too. They don't have the police don't have superpowers, but they're trained in how to deal with these confrontations. We are not. Because I've been I've been asked. Well, how come the police don't get charged? How come they get investigated by SIU and then they're found to have acted reasonably? It's in large part because the police are trained as to when to use their force. They have many weapons of force. They have, they'll have, they'll have a, a gun, they'll have uh, their own fists, they have 
uh, they'll have gloves on their hands at times. They're going to have uh, asps that they can use to, you know, a stick, an extending stick they can use. They're going to have tasers. And they're trained as to when to deploy, deploy those and when it's necessary. We don't have that. As, as gun owners, we have shooting sports. We're told there's a target, go shoot at the target. That's all we have. We're not told anything about how to deal with a gun in this type of a situation, when to apply the force and how to do it. We're not taught that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the, the process as well for, for people who have to go through this. I remember, and this goes back more than a decade, you represented um, Ian Thompson from, from Port Colbert, Ontario, who you know, was confronted with masked men, were firebombing his house. He fired some shots in self-defense. Now, he was eventually acquitted, but it was a very long, arduous, and costly process for him. And I think there's a concern that maybe in this Milton case or other cases that could arise, that's part of it. Even if you're eventually acquitted or, or found that you acted reasonably, to face the charges, to have to go through all of that, there's some punishment almost in the process at times. Oh, yeah, there is, because... On this type of a charge, it's a reverse onus bail. So the, the bail is presumed to be denied. And therefore, the Crown Attorney is going to say, we want that person held in jail pending trial. And then if you do manage to get bail, even as a first charge, a first a, a, an alleged first offender, you're going to be on tight bail conditions. Like right now, because of the... Uh, concerns about the use of firearms and firearms violence. Um, in southern Ontario, the conditions of bail on firearms offenses are very, very strict. Uh, I mean, to get house arrest is not unusual, mm-hmm. which means that you can't leave the house unless you're with your surety. And that, as well, you may not be able to leave the house uh, in the evening, say between 9 and 9 p.m. and a.m. So there are strict conditions that are imposed. And all that affects how you're able to meet the charge and how your life is. And quite frankly, that type of control is viewed as a punishment by the court. Yeah. Well, look, inevitably, you know, there's there's going to be some, some gray area here. There's going to be, uh, you know, some subjectiveness or arbitrariness so when it comes to how police interpret Section 34 and the specific facts in certain cases will matter. Is there anything we can change? Is Section 34, the criminal code, sufficient? Is, is there any other kind of change that, that might make sense here? Well, that's that's a a big question because, you know, we can think about how it is in the United States where they have castle laws and standard ground. Yeah. We, the, Section 34 is close to standard ground, but it isn't quite standard ground. One thing we don't have to do is we don't have to retreat. Um, That's not the law in Canada. But quite frankly, when you look at the factors that have to be looked at, there's eight factors. And we're we're not trained on how to deal with this. And so I think that it has to be simplified. And I think that that's more about you know, how it has to be simplified. I mean, you know, if a person has a weapon and they're within 20 feet of you and they're coming at you and you're a police officer, you're justified in using deadly force. 
If they're coming at you with a screwdriver, with a hammer, with a gun, with a knife, that justifies the police using deadly force. And in fact, they're lucky if they can get a shot off in that period of time because it's so quick that people, you know, a person can can cover 20 feet. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a wheel of force. Like, in other words, if you the, the wheel of force is when you get so, certain force, you react this way, and they react that way, and it escalates up into a deadly force. It starts with voice commands. Then it goes to uh, fisticuffs. It goes to restraints. It goes to the use of taser weapons. Then it goes to deadly force. And that is the type of thing whereby these eight criteria are complex. And it's not something that goes through our heads because we're in this very strange situation. We don't know how to react. We've never had to react before. We're not trained. But the law, when it approaches how we are and how we react, it's as if Section 34 presumes that we have the training and we've thought about all these things. Right. We haven't. No. No, certainly not. We'll see what comes of all of this. Uh, We'll leave it there for now. Always do appreciate the insight uh, and the time here. Thanks, Edward, for joining us this afternoon. Anytime, my friend, anytime. All the best. Take care. There you go. That's uh, attorney Edward Burley, who has mentioned uh, specializing in firearms law and self-defense law. And so he's got uh, a lot of history and knowledge of these kinds of cases. I mentioned the Ian Thompson situation in Port Coburn, Ontario, about a decade ago. And Edward represented Ian Thompson in that case, and he was initially charged with some pretty serious crimes before being acquitted. Here's a guy in the middle of the night, masked men show up outside his home. One of them yells, are you prepared to die? They start throwing Molotov cocktails at his house. He goes and gets his legally owned and legally stored firearm and fires some shots. These guys run away. And he ended up being charged. So it did go to trial. He eventually was acquitted. So it shouldn't have got that far. And I think that was one of the the cases that was an impetus for the government uh, at the time to make changes to Section 34 to better clarify our self-defense rights. But it's still going to be on a case-by-case basis. The situation in Milton, Ontario, as Edward Burley said, there's a lot we still don't know. At this point, police have determined shot was fired. That shot killed this individual. This is who fired the shot. Technically, that's a homicide. But they've decided we're going to lay the charge of murder, and we'll let the Crown and the judge sort it all out. Is that how it should go? It's a pretty big deal for somebody to be charged with homicide. And if this was somebody who was just defending his mother from a violent intruder, maybe you shouldn't get to that point. We have heard from the panel that the election integrity held. The delay on putting out the actual report, you'd have to talk directly to the public servants involved, but we will be following up on that. So was the Prime Minister uh, speaking today to reporters in Halifax, uh, as we played for you, and, and asked specifically about where is this report, this panel that's supposed to keep an eye on incidents of foreign interference during our elections? Where's their report on what happened or what we now know happened about the 2019 and 2021 elections? So the Prime Minister a little coy there about when we might see that. We're suggesting that uh, he's not quite sure but insisting that the outcomes of both of those elections, Canadians can have confidence in those outcomes and suggesting that this is uh, something we take seriously.
But look, were it not for the reporting, uh, first from uh, Global News and uh, then from the Globe and Mail last week, we wouldn't really know anything about this. But clearly, the government knows a lot in terms of the warnings uh, and reports they were receiving from CSIS. So there's not been transparency on this. And even still, there's not been transparency on this. Now, there's a parliamentary committee that is looking into this, and uh, they've decided to expand the scope of their work to include now the 2021 election, not just the 2019 election. But is any of this really going to get us answers? How do we get to the bottom of this? What's the best way to do so? Interesting piece today at The Line, theline.substat.com. Making the argument, really the only way to get to the bottom of all of this, really the only way to, to tell Canadians the whole story is through a full inquiry. Now, we just went through uh, that kind of a process, of course, with the uh, Commission of Inquiry into the government's use of the Emergencies Act, the Public Order Emergency Commission. Would something similar be warranted here? Well, joining us uh, to talk more about it is the author of that piece, uh, joining us on the line here this afternoon is Mitch Heibel. He's Director of Campaigns and Government Relations at Enterprise Canada. Mitch, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good to be here. Now, what's interesting, too, is that uh, you were doing some work, I understand, then, in, I believe, the 2021 campaign, maybe almost uh, also 2019. But maybe you can speak, first of all, just in terms of what was out there at the time or what you might have been hearing or what kind of concerns existed during those elections. So I, I only worked on the 2021 campaign. I didn't okay. work on the, on the 19 campaign. Um, the the moment I relate in the piece in the line is we were driving back from from the TVA debate, which took place in Montreal on, on September 2nd that year. And it was me and it was a colleague from the Conservative War Room. Um, and he was in charge of what you would what we would understand on the campaign to essentially be ethnocultural voter outreach. So things like advertising or campaign literature that has to be translated or, or events that have to be um, organized with, with specific ethnocultural communities across the country. And he, the whole drive back from Montreal to Ottawa, which is, I mean, it, it's probably a little more than two hours, but I, I think we made it in two, and, and maybe there are a few good reasons for that. But mm-hmm. <laughs> he was getting calls from organizers in British Columbia that were telling him about things we're seeing on WeChat, which is a popular application in China, but also among the Chinese Canadian community here in Canada. Um, and it was it was both misinformation and disinformation that pertained to the conservative campaign. And so while I was driving back, he was taking these calls, but he was also calling these reports into, into our war room at the campaign to say, like, there's something going on here. Now, what we've since learned from, from the reporting in the Globe and Mail is that uh, the People's Republic of China's Consul General to Vancouver has since reported, uh, or has been reported to have bragged about defeating two conservative candidates in BC or being responsible for their defeat. So yeah, I mean, there was there was there was some information we had at the time, and more came, started to come in. Um, but it was we don't we didn't have the full story then. Yeah. Yeah, because I do remember there were some stories coming to light about some some weird ongoings in some specific writings and maybe some conservative MPs that, that were being targeted. But it seems like now, based on what else has come to light, we're starting to get a, a clearer picture, aren't we, of of what was going on? Maybe not the full extent, but we, we've learned a lot more, haven't we? Well, in, in particular, if you look at the Globe and Mail's piece, what they allege is that in... I think it was I think it was the Consul General to Toronto, but I could be wrong. Could be Vancouver. 
was informing or representatives thereof were informing people that if they donated a certain amount to a campaign above the tax receipt, the campaign would later on reimburse them the difference between the tax receipt they received from the federal government and what they had donated to the campaign, which can be hundreds of dollars, right? And that's a very clear violation of elections law. Like, just as one example, we don't know as Canadians whether CSIS ever reported that to Elections Canada. We don't know if they did, whether Elections Canada ever communicated with the RCMP. But that's a fairly, like, fairly crystallized example of a way that you can interfere in our elections in a way that you can't really say it had an impact on the outcome. And, but the outcome is really beside the point. It deals with the larger sort of vulnerability of the process that we should all be so the Prime Minister's faced a lot of questions, you know, about what he knew and, and furthermore what they're prepared to do now moving forward to investigate this or to expel Chinese diplomats. We've got uh, apparently a report coming at some point from this panel that's responsible for this issue, parliamentary committee that's looking into the matter. I guess part of what you're arguing in your piece here, though, is that, that, that really all of that's not sufficient. So that's actually a shame, but it is true. The way parliamentary committees are envisioned to work, they can be incredibly powerful investigative tools. They have the right to call for what is what is known as persons, papers, and things. Mm-hmm. Um, that is un like unboundaried by law. Really, it, it, it's an unmitigated right that is given to parliamentary committee. But in order to do that, the committee actually has to pass specific motions on what they're calling for and by what timeline. And this is where you run into trouble. I was, I was Aaron O'Toole's director of parliamentary affairs, and we saw this again and again at committee, that any motion to compel witness testimony or to compel the production of, of certain documents or specific papers would be dragged out for weeks with filibusters at committee. And it would make it impossible for members to actually render factual judgments or ask even informed questions of witnesses because they just weren't provided with the information. When you have a public inquiry or a judicial inquiry, you have a very simple process. Counsel for one of the parties makes a motion to, to either produce documents or subpoena witness testimony. The judge, in this case, hears arguments in favor and against and, and renders a ruling. But once that subpoena is issued, you've got to comply. So it, it takes the politics out of it, and it also keeps us focused on the facts of what happened, which is important if we're facing what I think we're facing which is a multiple system level failure at the government level to keep our elections safe. So public inquiry is probably ultimately what is going to get us the answers we need and and we deserve in your opinion. So there's two basic questions here. First, is a parliamentary committee able to, will it actually be able to examine all the relevant evidence? I don't think it will. And the reason I don't think it will is when parliament tried to do this a year and a half, two years ago, with a suspected um, espionage attempt at the High Security National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg, the government sued the Speaker of the House of Commons to keep the the committee that was investigating from getting access to certain documents. That's an unheard of move in in parliamentary sort of jurisprudence. So just the politics would keep a committee from getting to it. But even beyond that, Talking about what I was mentioning earlier with elections finances, that's a question of law for which you should have a judge and not a series of 13 or 11 politicians, depending on the size of the committee. 
Should this be just an investigation of electoral interference? I, I think we've got some other issues that have come up with China. I mean, you talk about in your piece, you know, alleged Chinese espionage at Canada's highest security microbiology lab. These kinds of issues does need to be a bigger look at at our relationship with China. I mean, we've heard about the illegal and secret police stations, that kind of interference. How, how broad a scope do we need here? So it's important, I think, to separate a specific incident of institutional failure or suspected institutional failure on the part of either the security establishment or Elections Canada or the RCMP or the civil service from a broader policy change toward China, which has to be made at a political level, mm-hmm. right? So when it comes to uh, research security, which is, which is the National Microbiology Lab, but it's also a ton of universities around the country that have Confucius Institutes as an example, um, that's a policy decision, and that should be made by politicians. In terms of a sort of look and a review into matters of government breakdown or potential criminal activity, which is what, like I said, which a violation of the Elections Finance Act or the Elections Act is, is a very different thing. And that should be reviewed under a legal and a judicial setting, which is capable of rendering a judgment of fact and not policy. There is the concern, and I think it's still maybe a lingering concern with the the inquiry we just had into the use of the Emergencies Act, that the government is still involved. The government's setting the parameter. The government's choosing the the judge to to oversee all of this, that there's still the potential that it maybe wouldn't be as independent as it needs to be. What what about those concerns? So if your concern is political interference, you do not have a an entirely free way of escaping that concern. You, you, mm-hmm. do, you have to deal with your best of bad options. You're, you're right. The government will select a judge. The government would set up the terms of reference for the inquiry. All of those are potential problems. That's true. There are ways to mitigate that, um, you, but we don't have a lot of parameters involved for a very, a, a, an entirely clean process. What I will say is, even though I, the government got the result that they wanted in the in the Public Order Emergency Commission, the process revealed a whole raft of things that I guarantee you the government did not want to have be yeah, public. That's true, right? So it can still be a, a, a substantive accountability exercise, and, and once again, for determining facts, which is what we really need in this particular case instead of speculation, even though there are a few maybe logistical or administrative matters at the very beginning of the process that have a political level of involvement. You can also, by the way, say you you could put measures in place to mitigate that, but there's no way to escape it entirely. Maybe the best option. Uh, we'll see what comes of all of this. In the meantime, uh, as mentioned, your piece, it's up at The Line. That's theline.substack.com. Mitch, really appreciate uh, your time here this afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here anytime. All the best. Take care. Uh, that's Mitch Heimpel. He has uh, worked, as mentioned, uh, with conservative campaigns in the past, has served uh, cabinet ministers as well, is currently director of campaigns and government relations at Enterprise Canada. His piece up at uh, The Line, theline.substack.com. Uh, why ultimately what we need here is a full inquiry that that's the best way to get us the most amount of truth here.
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.